This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com forward slash free books to download this book on PDF. The title of this book is Westminster's Confession, The Abandonment of Van Til's Legacy by Gary North, Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas. Copyright Gary North, 1991. Introduction. And Jesus knew their thoughts and said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. Matthew 12, 25 In the final days of October 1990, the long-predicted book by the Faculty of Westminster Theological Seminary finally appeared, Theonomy, a Reformed Critique, edited by William S. Barker and W. Robert Godfrey. This appeared two years after the appearance of another Westminster Symposium, Inerrancy and Hermeneutic, 1988, edited by Harvey Kahn. Kahn's book was dedicated to the memory of Cornelius Van Til. Theonomy, a Reformed Critique, reveals to what extent that dedication was institutionally misleading. The Westminster faculty produced Scripture and Confession, 1973. Prior to that, there had been only one other Westminster Symposium, The Infallible Word, 1946. This averages one volume every 15 years, 1929 to 1990. Something else is worth noting. In six decades of Westminster Theological Seminary, Theonomy, a Reformed Critique, is the first collection by Westminster faculty members that is devoted to an attack on a particular, identifiable group of rival theologians. We are still waiting for Westminster Seminary's published critiques of Roman Catholicism, Dispensationalism, Lutheranism, Episcopalianism, Barthianism, Boltmanism, Death of God Theology, Liberation Theology, New Age Theology, Occultism, or any of a dozen other theological trends. So far, we have waited in vain. What clearly disturbs Westminster Seminary is theonomy. The reason for this concern should be obvious to anyone who knows the history of ideological warfare. The most dangerous enemies to any movement are those splinter groups that are within the camp of the faithful, or so close to it that they attract the movement's followers, especially the brightest, most aggressive, and most dedicated followers. Lenin's first wave of oppression was not launched against the Tsarists and capitalists, but against the Mensheviks, the Social Revolutionary Party, and the anarchists, all of whom had participated in the October Revolution. These mass arrests began in the spring of 1918. The communists' systematic suppression of the churches and Christians came later, in the 1920s. Similarly, Hitler first went after the Rom faction of the Nazi party in the famous Night of the Long Knives in 1934. Only after this did he concentrate on the communists, the capitalists, and the Jews. Westminster's faculty decided to scratch in public where the itching has become most intense. The comprehensively reformed theology of the theonomists is what produced almost two decades of itching, a condition that has intensified sharply since 1981, when I finally got control over enough money to put the theonomic publication machine into high gear. You can put out a lot of books by spending a million or so dollars net not counting any of the income from book sales. The Tar Baby Strategy 
in Joel Chandler Harris's delightful Tales of Uncle Remus, there is a story about a tar baby made by Briar Fox to trap Briar Rabbit. It was included in the 1946 Disney movie, Song of the South, but in a recent Disney book version, it has become the glue baby, White, a pathetic rewriting of the story, presumably for racial reasons. The rabbit says, Howdy, to the tar baby, but the tar baby says nothing. The rabbit says, Howdy, again. Silence. Finally, in exasperation, the rabbit hits the tar baby and is then trapped. He hits it again, then kicks. He cannot get free. The more he struggles, the more trapped he gets. I recognized the existence of the seminary blackout against theonomic materials at least 25 years ago. When there was no public acknowledgement of the existence of R.J. Rushduni's books or work, he became a non-person. When in the late 1970s, I decided that if I ever had enough money in the ICE bank account to run my own version of the Tar Baby strategy, I would launch it. But in my version, I am a chatty Tar Baby, and the seminaries are silent rabbits. I keep saying in print that they do not have the theological goods to deal with the cries of modern society because they neglect biblical law and post-millennialism, and they just sit there, silent, proving my point. Finally, one of the faculty members hits back, and from that point on, he is trapped. I finance a book in reply. The only way for him to save face publicly is to write a reply, and then I publish another book. This goes on until there are no more replies. Then I announce a victory and target a new victim. This strategy is expensive, but it works. It took until the late 1980s to get a Dallas Seminary professor to respond, H. Wayne House, with Rev. Thomas D. Ice, Dominion Theology, Blessing or Curse, 1988. Immediately, Bonson and Gentry responded, House Divided, The Breakup of Dispensational Theology, 1989. Almost immediately thereafter, House disappeared from the Dallas Seminary faculty. Mission accomplished. There was only one additional response from Dallas, a brief and misleading book review in Bibliotheca Sacra from John Walverd, which both Gentry and I answered in the monthly ICE newsletter, Dispensationalism in Transition. I decided to take a more subtle approach to Westminster Seminary, no direct confrontations. All we would do is show case by case that to be consistently reformed is to be theonomic and postmillennial. I decided to publish positive alternatives to the traditional pietistic Scottish common sense rationalism that had undergirded the apologetic methodology of American Presbyterianism. In this task, I was merely following the lead of Cornelius Van Til. I also wrote Bible commentaries, the four volumes of my economic commentary on the Bible. Genesis and Exodus, three volumes. I wrote and published five additional volumes of appendixes to these four volumes. I published a ten-volume set called the Biblical Blueprint Series, which offered positive biblical answers to ten problem areas in society. Because I adopted a positive publishing strategy rather than a negative one, it took longer for us to flush out anyone at Westminster. But a symposium is more than I ever dreamed of. Now I get to target 16 birds with one stone. But like David against Goliath, I have added some extra stones. Bonson has written No Other Standard, 1991. Ice publishes it. It also published my book, 
Millennialism and Social Theory, 1990, which deals with some of these issues involved. Finally, it publishes Theonomy, an Informed Response, 1991, a collection of essays that respond to Theonomy, a Reformed Critique. I believe in stuffing the critic's mouth with footnotes. In this case, the critics may well choke. I dearly hope so. A Positive Confession Like all of our critical books, Westminster's Confession is a positive statement. The archetype is Damar and Lightheart's The Reduction of Christianity, a Biblical Response to Dave Hunt, 1988, which is not merely a response to Dave Hunt. It is a very clear statement of the theonomic Christian Reconstructionist position. Similarly, David Chilton's Productive Christians in an Age of Guilt Manipulators, a Biblical Response to Ronald J. Sider, 1981, is more than a response to Sider. It is a positive statement of Christian economics. This takes me to one of my familiar slogans. You can't beat something with nothing. It is not enough to demonstrate that someone is wrong. You also must show what is correct. Cornelius Van Til made this principle the bedrock application of his apologetic method. It was not enough to demonstrate that his opponent's own systems of thought were internally inconsistent. He also showed why Christianity is the only logical alternative. His only weakness in this regard was his refusal to offer an explicitly biblical alternative to the natural law theory that he so thoroughly refuted. Why are you so mean? Some critics, and even a few supporters, of theonomy profess astonishment and public consternation at my style of responding to published critics. They say that I have treated critics in print as if they were liars, buffoons, and theological incompetents. I have taken this approach self-consciously, primarily because these critics have been liars, buffoons, and theological incompetents. Anyone who reads Hal Lindsey's attempt to tar theonomists with anti-Semitism can see what I am talking about. When the best-selling Christian author of this generation informs his followers regarding the Christian Reconstructionist movement, quote, This is the most anti-Semitic movement I've seen since Hitler, end quote. What is the proper response? It occurs to me that Hal Lindsey has had only one fewer wife than Westminster Seminary has had published symposiums. My public references to Lindsay's marital status are regarded by some of his fundamentalist followers as far more damaging to me than his divorces are to him. Fundamentalist priorities are sometimes ethically peculiar. What very few Christians recognize today is that direct confrontation through verbal abuse was basic to the Protestant Reformation. Indeed, it has been basic to the whole history of church doctrine. Few readers today are familiar with Luther's vitriolic attacks on all his opponents. These published attacks were vastly more confrontational than anything I have ever written. Two detailed historical treaties discuss his tactics, both written by Mark Edwards, Luther and the False Brethren, and Luther's Last Battles. The second volume reprints some of the infamous woodcuts used by Luther in his pamphlets, including the Pope, God of the World, is Worshipped, in which a knight is defeating into the Pope's mitre, and kissing the Pope's feet, in which two men have their bare backsides exposed to the Pope. But what of John Calvin? He was the greatest scholar of the Reformation. Surely he was not drawn into such unbecoming verbal exchanges. On the contrary, 
Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, is filled with pejorative adjectives attached to his opponents, many of them Trinitarians. These adjectives go way beyond the standards of what is today regarded as polite theological discourse. Roman Catholics, raving madmen or prate, Bolingerites, squeamish men, Osiander, Lutheran, perversely ingenuous, ignorantly babbling, absurd, rubbish, a sophist, writing bombast, mad error, and deceits. Arminians, dogs who vomit forth these blasphemies and rave, impious and profane men. Anabaptists, madmen, who preach pestilential error. Scholastic theologians, babble childlessly and chatter, a mad school of wranglers, blockheads. Calvin described Jews as sharp-nosed fault-finders and dogs. He treated Epicureans, Socinians, Servetus, and other non-Christian opponents in the same way. There's no question that no Christian publishing house would issue either man's writings if we, he were alive today, unless heavily edited to remove such language. John Knox was, if anything, more intemperate. So with respect to style, I am far closer to the tradition of the Reformation and the tracks of the Puritan pamphlet wars of 17th century England than my squeamish critics have been. If anything, I am overly tamed by those earlier standards. But academic politeness, a politeness born of a desire to escape life-threatening confrontations during a period of life-and-death religious confrontations, has become the standard of Western academic discourse. The rhetorical etiquette of this of the sideline sitters has triumphed institutionally. Any ideological movement that disregards the requirement of this etiquette cannot enter the narrow gates of the academically certified. This standard exists primarily to guard the tenured holders of respectable authority from the slings and arrows of outrageous life-and-death issues. The subdued whispers of conventional academic discourse are supposed to soothe the troubled souls of those who would shout a warning to a collapsing social order. Calvinism, which once called the West to repentance and sought to restructure Western civilization, is nearly forgotten. Because Calvinism's proponents have attempted to adopt contemporary academia's alien rhetorical standard, its opponents have been safely able to ignore it. In its most toothless and feckless form, Calvinism enlists that underfunded academic curiosity, the theological seminary. No one pays much attention. It was not Westminster Seminary, Reformed Seminary, Calvin Seminary, or Covenant Seminary that called forth Lindsay's The Road to Holocaust. Hunt's Whatever Happened to Heaven, House and Ice's Dominion Theology, Blessing or Curse, and Dagger's Vengeance is Ours. It was my rhetoric and my publishing money that did. To make an impact, you have to put your money where your mouth is, and it helps to have a loud mouth. The defenders of the mild-mannered Clark Kent approach to theological debate call their approach ironic. The word means peaceful or non-polemical. The Oxford English Dictionary cites Schaff's Encyclopedia of Religious Knowledge. Quote, Irenical theology, or irenics, presents the points of agreement among Christians with a view to the ultimate unity of Christendom. End quote. While there are periods in church history when the issues have not been sorted out, the goal of orthodoxy has been to eliminate the elimination of all false theological opinion in the long run. 
but those theological doctrines that are regarded at all times as fundamental threats to the faith must not be dealt with ironically. They must be challenged, root and branch, and old Puritan phrase. They must also be challenged rhetorically. An ironic approach is completely inappropriate in such cases. But academic Calvinists cannot grasp this. For them, ironics is not a temporary tactic, it is a way of life. The character in literature, who is the embodiment of this way of life, is Dr. Pangloss in Voltaire's Candidate. Why are modern Calvinists, of all theologians, ironic? Because they have begged at the tables of their enemies for so long. They have begged humanists and theological liberals for academic accreditation. They have sent their ministers to secular universities. They have sought to remain in theologically liberal denominations as minority tokens. They have lost their faith in the victory of Christianity and history, let alone the victory of Calvinism. They have seen themselves as minority status citizens in a world forever controlled by their enemies. Thus, they have sought to avoid confrontations. They have become psychologically ironic. Not so Luther and Calvin. They were not in the, la in the least interested in gaining the positive sanctions of the Roman Church. They had no interest in ironic debates. They wanted to identify areas of disagreement, not areas of agreement. They adopted a highly confrontational rhetorical style, but the average Calvinist or Lutheran knows almost nothing of the rhetoric of the Reformation. Christians rarely study church history. Protestants do not even study the history of the Reformation. Perhaps they may have sat through a Sunday school series 20 years ago that surveyed the Reformation. Maybe they have read a 140-page book on the Reformation written by a non-confrontational seminary professor whose rhetorical model is modern academia. If the Reformation had been run by today's seminary professors, it never would have begun. A typical Calvinist has never read Calvin's Institutes. It sits on his shelf unread. Someday I'll read it, he vows to himself, but he knows he never will. Anyway, our pastor has read it, he knows. Ha! If every Calvinist pastor in America who has not read the Institutes cover to cover had to resign on a Thursday, there would be a lot of empty pulpits the next Sunday. The whole of the Institutes is not assigned in any Calvinist seminary that I know of. Calvinists simply do not know the history of their movement. They do not know what the Reformers did in order to leave the legacy of the Reformation to their spiritual heirs. They have never read the rhetoric of the Reformation. They accept the Reformers' legacy but reject their methods. A New Testament Tradition Some defenders of non-confrontational rhetoric still may not be satisfied with this answer. They may ask, quote, but what was Luther's or Calvin's theological justification for using such confrontational rhetoric? End quote. Answer. Jesus set the example. Even with his friends, he was rhetorically devastating and uncompromising. When Peter assured him that he would not have to die, quote, He turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. End quote. Matthew sixteen twenty three. Sharp and right to the point. When Nicodemus discussed theology with Jesus, coming as a student to a master teacher, Jesus responded to his deceptive response, quote, Art thou a master of Israel and knowest not these things? John 3.10 This was putting him in his place. Paul acted the same way when Peter sat, sat apart from the Gentiles at Antioch out of fear of the Judaizers. Paul did not hesitate to embarrass him publicly. Quote, but when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face, because he was to be blamed. 
End quote. Galatians 2.11 What about his responses to his enemies? What did he say to those whose opinions and practices were wrong and who were not about to change? For example, what did Jesus say of Herod? The same day there came certain of the Pharisees saying unto him, Get thee out, and depart hence, for Herod will kill thee. And he said unto them, Go ye, and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out devils, and I do cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Luke thirteen thirty-one to 32 This was a major civil ruler. What did Paul say of the Judaizers inside the church of Galatia? And I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased. I would they were even cut off with which trouble you. Galatians five eleven and 12. Cut off. Here probably refers to their total circumcision, physically and ecclesiastically, a very graphic use of words. No doubt this is regarded as being in extremely poor taste by modern Calvinists. Verbal Shock Therapy Sometimes the verbal shock therapy of harsh rhetoric does persuade an opponent. But the fact is, very few opponents are ever swayed by anything that the pioneer of a new viewpoint says. Thus, the use of sharp rhetoric is adopted for reasons other than persuading one's opponents. It is adopted to persuade one's followers of, or those not yet committed. It is used to rally your troops more than it is to disperse your opponent's troops. General George Patton's famous speech to his troops, a toned-down version, was used to begin the 1970 movie, Patton was not delivered to persuade the Germans to surrender. Neither was Theonomy, a reformed critique, written to persuade Bonson to abandon Theonomy for the judicial grab bag that Westminster Seminary's faculty teaches these days. It was written to persuade students that the faculty really does have legitimate theological reasons for not adopting Theonomy, and more to the point, institutionally, for refusing to hire the only professionally certified, Ph.D.-holding, Calvinist philosopher and follower of Van Til to fill Van Til's position. Why am I the theonomist's main practitioner of confrontational rhetoric? First, Rush Dooney does not respond to his critics in print, politely or otherwise. He never has. I call this the Dwight Eisenhower strategy. Second, Bonson is still governed by the etiquette of the American university community. He writes as if rigorous logic and masses of Bible verses might conceivably persuade his opponents. It never seems to, but he keeps trying. Devotion. Third, Gentry also prefers classroom etiquette. I think it is just a matter of taste with him. Fourth, DeMar has only recently decided that a decade of lies and misrepresentations by our opponents, especially dispensationalists, is not ethically random. He is not yet fully comfortable with my approach. While he is beginning to catch on, he is hampered by being a nice guy. Fifth, Sutton is also a nice guy. Chilton, in Productive Christians in an Age of Guilt Manipulators, proved himself to be a rhetorical master, but he no longer writes. His subsequent books were more academic, and he seemed to lose his gift of verbal bloodletting. The other major Reconstructionist authors are still interested in landing seminary jobs. This leaves it to me to serve as the movement's hardliner. Every movement needs at least one. If none is present, Sheer boredom on the part of the readers will doom it. Luther understood this. His rhetoric changed the Western world. But never forget, it did not persuade the Roman Catholic Church. It was not intended to, any more than Knox sought to persuade Bloody Mary to abdicate the throne of England 
when he wrote the first blast of the trumpet against the monstrous regiment of women. Their goal was not to persuade their opponents. Rather, it was to persuade the undecided. You attract more flies with the honey than vinegar, the old saying goes. But who wants to attract flies? Self-defense. Let the reader also understand what we theonomists are reacting to. We are not dealing with a group of self-restrained fellows who guard every word, who judge every phrase by its many possible outcomes. We are dealing with a seminary that opened access to the pages of its scholarly journal to Meredith G. Klein, who wrote, quote, The tragedy of Chalcedon is out of high potential wasted, worse than wasted, for its most distinctive and emphatically maintained thesis is a delusive and grotesque perversion of the teaching of Scripture, end quote. No judicious scholarly editor blue-penciled that bit of vitriol. Quote, delusive and grotesque perversion? End quote. Try to find anything comparable to that dose of invective in my writings regarding another Reformed author. Yet, the theonomists are regarded as the pit bulls of theological discourse, primarily because of my somewhat colorful nose-tweaking of opponents. It amuses me that Klein complained about the overheated typewriter of Greg Bonson. Three years later, I got my first word processor. Now Bonson has one, too. Overheated is understated. Winston Churchill once remarked that if you get a reputation for being an early riser, you can sleep till noon. This is what Westminster Seminary's original faculty bequeathed to the school's present faculty, a reputation for academic precision and an uncompromising and uncompromised defense of confessional Calvinism. It is my belief that Edmund P. Clowney and most of his appointees frittered away much of the institutional inheritance, but the old reputation lingers on. Klein can get away with rhetorical murder today because Edward J. Young was a gentleman. I want to be positive, not just negative. I am not recommending some sort of theological revolution at Westminster Seminary. However, I am recommending what would be an institutional revolution. I am suggesting that it is time for Westminster Seminary to adopt John Calvin's Institutes of Christian Religion as its first semester's systematic theology textbook. It is also time to require a course on the Westminster Confession and the two catechisms for all first-year students. This would surely involve studying the life and era of Oliver Cromwell, which would horrify certain members of the Westminster's faculty who seem to be concerned lest the students discover that the representative Puritan political figure of the era of the Westminster Assembly was not a precursor of George McGovern. Oliver Cromwell was not someone whose work was praised by the late Paul Woolley, Westminster Seminary's pro-abortion, liberal Democrat, the school's church historian for 47 years. I do not remember hearing Edmund Clowney say anything good about Cromwell either. Cromwell and the Scottish Covenanters are Westminster Seminary's problem. So are the New England Puritans, 1630-1660. The one time that the theology of the Westminster Confession was partially applied to society, including politics, the results were generally theocratic and conservative. This has led to a discreet silence on the part of the Westminster faculty, up until theonomy, a reformed critique, regarding both the legitimacy and judicial character of the Puritan social experiment. A House Divided It was obvious from the start that the theonomists were self-consciously neo-Puritans, and not the pietistic, socially uninvolved Puritans of the cloister, whose writings the Banner of Truth Trust has reprinted for the last three decades. 
it is equally obvious that applied Puritan theology was theocratic. So Westminster's problem for a generation, indeed, Calvinistic American Presbyterianism's problem for two centuries, has been to justify its com commitment to modern religious and political pluralism in terms of the Westminster Confession's judicial standards. Most obviously of all, it has been Westminster Seminary's self-consciously postponed intellectual burden to reconcile Van Til's absolute rejection of common ground natural law theory with any theory of democratic politics, from Grotius and Roger Williams to the present. This is a heavy burden. There is no possible reconciliation. But the faculty has been double-minded on this point, proclaiming to their financial supporters their commitment to Van Til's apologetics. They have also rejected the theonomists' neo-Puritan standard of a theocratic republic. Proclaiming their rejection of natural law theory, they have simultaneously denied the idea that the Bible is the bearer of biblical blueprints or judicial frameworks for anything outside the four walls of the church and the Christian home. In short, they have abandoned any ideal of a Christian society, for example, Christendom itself. This is Westminster's social and cultural confession, a theologically negative confession, proclaiming in the name of the original Westminster Assembly what society ought not to be, but never daring to suggest what it should be. It is the offense of Christian Reconstruction that in the name of the original Westminster Confession we proclaim an exclusively biblical ideal based on the idea that the general equity of civil law can be progressively achieved in history only through a self-conscious application of biblical law, theonomy. If Van Til was correct about the corrupting effects of sin on fallen man's ethical sense, and if he was correct about the illegitimacy of natural law theory, then there could be no other interpretation of the general equity clause of the Westminster Confession, 19.4. But Westminster Seminary has played a game of sick et non with Van Til's legacy, saying yes to his rejection of natural law, but no to the theonomists' application of it to civil law and to the Confession's General Equity Clause. Westminster's Confession is a confession in conflict. Westminster Seminary is inherently a house divided against itself. So is any form of Christianity that adopts Westminster's new judicial confession. Christian Reconstructionists paraphrase Van Til, quote, Christian society is not one possible working model among many. It is the only possible working model. Every other model is wrong and will be judged wanting by God in history, end quote. To silence this positive confession, Westminster's faculty decided to write Theonomy, a Reformed Critique. Sadism and Natural Law Theory Because this is an introduction, I need to warn the reader well in advance. This book is about natural law theory and its implications for applied theology. Make no mistake about it. All Christian theology is applied theology. This may not be apparent in all cases, but it is always the case. There is no neutrality in life. Christianity is a way of life. Every religion is a way of life, and every way of life is grounded in some religion. If you want my thesis of natural law theory in one graphic sentence, I will provide it. The most consistent defender of natural law theory was the Marquis de Sade. De Sade's incomparable perversity was self-consciously based on his observation of the workings of nature. In this sense, he was a faithful, late 18th century Enlightenment thinker. De Sade came about as close as anyone ever has in literature 
to become the fully consistent covenant-breaking man. The American literary critic Edmund Wilson once wrote that the only writer that he could not bear to read while eating breakfast was DeSade. When you think natural law theory, always think sadism. Natural law theory, apart from God's grace, both special and common, leads to sadism. So does its logical, corollary, political pluralism. If you doubt me, how do you explain Roe versus Wade? Think of 25 million unborn American infants silently screaming 1973 to 1990. This is the Marquis de Sade's moral legacy to America and Roger Williams's political legacy. We, the politically sovereign people, have spoken. De Sade was a true Enlightenment Republican. He wrote these stirring words, quote, We need a faith, a faith suited to the Republican character and far removed from ever possibly resuming that of Rome. In an age when we are so convinced that religion must rest on morality and not morality upon religion, we need a religion in tune with our way of life, as it were, the development, the inevitable extension of it, a religion which can elevate the soul and keep it perpetually at the level of that precious liberty which it venerates today as its only idol, end quote. He was a man opposed to harsh civil sanctions, such as the death penalty. He also opposed civil laws against prostitution, adultery, incest, rape, and sodomy. After all, these are all natural urges and practices. They are found in nature. Marriage and monogamy are not normal in nature. Can we possibly imagine nature giving us the possibility of committing a crime which would offend her? When a man chooses between natural law and biblical law, let him understand well in advance just what the theoretical implications of his choice really are. The faculty of Westminster Theological Seminary has not yet understood these implications, yet it has long since made its collective choice. Conclusion The Calvinist or Reformed Protestant world today is an exceedingly narrow one. One might even say institutionally incestuous, which is the fate of newly developing movements and also fading ones. The Reformed world, being small and few in number, can muster only a few scholars and fewer published ones. But Calvinism's influence in the American Protestant world has been way out of proportion to its numbers ever since 1800, when Baptists and Methodists began to outstrip the Calvinists on the growing mission field of the western United States. Why this disproportional influence? One reason is that the various non-reformed camps, Lutherans accepted, did not do the work of detailed biblical scholarship until after World War II, when neo-evangelicalism appeared. The fundamentalist world still relies heavily on non-fundamentalists to defend itself against the higher critics of the Bible. So as defenders of the faith, especially against German liberalism, Reformed scholars were the watchmen on the American church's watchtower. After 1900, this watchtower meant primarily Princeton Seminary until the split in 1929, and it meant Westminster Seminary and Covenant Seminary until quite recently. This is why theonomy, a Reformed critique, is important. To understand that book, however, the reader needs to know more about its historical background. There is a great deal more than meets the eye here, especially since certain segments of the book are designed to blacken the eyes of Christian Reconstructionists. It is worth recalling that after Dr. Klein was answered in detail, point by point, by Bonson, he neither retracted his essay nor apologized. He also never responded. 
Instead, he went into twelve years of intellectual hibernation, from which he is unlikely ever to emerge. Klein's performance was an academic hit-and-run operation. When his victim managed to get up and then identify the driver, nobody at Westminster Seminary pressed charges against Klein. But at least Klein stopped, quote, riding while under the influence, end quote. He has left to his followers from Gordon Conwell a vastly less gifted crowd intellectually. The task of spewing venom, not to mention disinformation, which they do in style in Theonomy a Reform Critique. And so Gary North now gets a legitimate opportunity to spell out in greater detail some of the concerns he has, not with Reformed theology, but with Westminster Seminary's present confession. So do some of his associates. Let the reader understand, this is a response to public criticisms, not a direct attack initiated at this end of the theological spectrum. We are merely trying to defend ourselves from specific accusations, accusations that did not appear, as if by magic, out of a neutral investigation of the primary source documents of Christian Reconstruction. There are some hidden agendas scattered about, and it is time to pay closer attention to them. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.